You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. We are talking today about reimagining the God of the Bible, and we are talking with William Paul Young, the author of The Shack, and he has some other uh, works going on, projects, including some films, actually. So, reimagining the God of the Bible. Right, and he's done a fair bit of that himself, right, with The Shack, where uh, you know he reimagines the Trinity in ways that was pretty controversial for a number of people, but also just a breath of fresh air for others. And reimagining God, or, or I mean, if that word doesn't help, use another one, how we think about God. That really changes for people at different times and different places, different circumstances. And, and even within the Bible, right, Jared, we talked a little bit about how even the Bible itself is thinking about God in ways that make sense culturally. Yeah, and I like the language of reimagining because it's images of God, and we are sort of re-imaging God in every culture, and even just metaphorically, and, and Paul will talk about that in the conversation of, you know, where God is a rock and a shield and a mother hen. And so, you know, we talk often about how we feel like there's the static Bible that doesn't do these dynamic things, and we are sort of putting our own uh, spin on things. But when we look at the Bible, the Bible itself is reimagining the God of the Bible. Yeah, the Bible is putting a spin on God, so to speak, and and using different images to describe God. And I guess the the big question that many of us who are trying to be you know faithful followers of Jesus and taking the Bible seriously is is it then our responsibility also to continue that process, let's say, of reimagining God where we are, even if it may not be exactly, I mean, this to me is a fascinating question, even if it may not be where the Bible is thinking about God, right? Because it's so diverse. And we, and I think most of us probably don't think of God as a warrior who just can't wait to make people bleed. You know, but you have that image in the Old Testament, and and it's not the only one, but you have it there. So, so you know, I, it may just be that we all have to reimagine God. And when and Paul, when he wrote the Shack, he did a fair amount of that. And where God the Father is an African American woman, which really freaked people out because, well, well, God's not like that. Well, what is God like? Well, first of all, he's a he, and he's white, right? And he has a beard uh, for sure. Maybe that's also reimagining God in ways that make sense to us. Well, and that goes back to you know when we talked. Uh, I forget which episode it was, but I did a little after thing on our for our Patreon community of talking about the idea that sometimes we privilege our own kind of theology as though that's just theology plain, mm-hmm. and then other cultures when they do theology, right? Like, so we think when we reimagine God, we're reimagining God as a African-American woman. But when we talk about God as an old white man, that's not reimagining God. That's mm-hmm. just God plain. And and just, you know, it's it almost sounds ridiculous even saying it mm-hmm. in a way, but I think that's a lot of our default to take our culture or the way we grew up understanding God and sort of concretize it or make it sort of dogma. And anyone else who thinks of it differently, they're doing something, there's some funny business going on there. Well, here's the thought. Reimagining God is not an act of spiritual rebellion. It's actually an act of humility because you're recognizing that how you imagine God may not be the be-all and end-all. Maybe right. that's something to learn from all this. So, Yeah. Well, let's get to the interview, shall we? Sounds good. Let's do this. God has never been religious. There's never been a time where the Spirit is saying, uh, so who's in charge of the service this weekend, you know, and where are we going to have it? God is just not a religious being, which means that God is about relationship, and religion and relationship are oftentimes antagonistic. Not completely, but oftentimes antagonistic. And what that means is that all religious ideology is something that we have brought to the table. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work. 
and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And that's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast, and welcome to William Paul Young, our guest today. Paul, how are you? I am very well. I'm off a long road trip, and I'm glad to be home. So oh, where was the road trip? Um, <clears throat> East Coast, and then uh, Switzerland and Germany. Oh, so okay. Switzerland was more about the movie, and then Germany was more about lies we believe about God. Oh, my goodness gracious. That's fantastic. So, Okay, well, listen, uh, the topic for today is reimagining the God of the Bible, and you've done a little bit of that. You wrote The Shack. Is that right? You are the, you are the same guy, I, right? I am. I did do that, yes. Okay, that's a relief, because if we have the wrong <laughs> William Paul Young on, that's huge embarrassment. Could be the wrong Paul Young. I could be a British rock star, you know. I know, yeah. So in this book, you reimagined God as an African-American woman. Correct. God the Father, specifically. Yes. So when did you stop being a Christian? <laughs> yeah, I'm only a Christian when it's to my benefit. Think so about, you're American. I mean, just, yeah, and I'm Canadian. <laughs> Thank you. So, I mean, think about this. Paul was only a Roman when it was an advantage, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that we ought to be, because we belong to a kingdom that's not of this world. So we ought to be American or Canadian when it's to our advantage. But I think that's true about being a Christian, too. Right. Because Christian has become a religious category rather than an actual expression of the, yeah. of the person of Jesus. So, I mean, there are times when it's to our advantage to be Christian, but there are some times when it's absolutely not, and it's uh, divisive and destructive to human relationships. And I think, I think we ought to be free about those kinds of um, categorizations or use of language. That's a big hill for people to climb. It is, but... You know, it's got to come back to Jesus or, or we're just all just shimming up whatever tree we find. So it's like, well, when did you stop becoming a Christian? Well, I, I am a Christian. That's my tradition. And when it's to my advantage, I absolutely embrace it. And I'm inside the Christian traditional framework a lot. And, and those are my people. In fact, not just Christian, but evangelical fundamentalist holiness movement, Christian and Missionary Alliance, missionary kid, preacher's kids, having gone to Bible school and seminary. I mean, I'm entrenched in that history and that tradition in the same way that Paul would say, I'm a Jew of the Jews and I'm a, you know, uh, all that. And then, he, and then he turns around and calls it what? The nice English word is dung or nothing. <laughs> but the, the Greek word is scubula, which was a street word for fecal material or shit, as we would say. But uh, but what he's, what he's doing, he's annihilating the categories so that Jesus can emerge as the greatest revelation that, that we are expressions of rather than a religious background or framework. Mm -hmm. so I'd be interested in a little more of your story. You know, you talk about coming from missionary kid, evangelical fundamentalist, and then, you know, writing a novel that depicts God the Father as an African-American woman. Sure. And, and what was the, the journey that you took where you felt like that was maybe you were inspired to do that or that was appropriate and felt really right for that, for that depiction? What was yeah. that journey? Well, keep in mind that I, I wrote it when I was 50 years old. So it's not like I was doing this as a young evangelical. Um, that was too far of a hill to climb at the time. But I had issues, even as a teenager, with what we did inside of my religious tradition with gender and hierarchy and structure. And there's so many things that just felt wrong, but we weren't allowed to even ask the questions about it. So growing up, I, I had the advantage of growing up in a multicultural world, which I think has a lot to do with it. I was a year old when we moved into the highlands of uh, the interior part of Netherlands, New Guinea, which is now West Papua, among a Stone Age tribal spirit-worshipping people that practiced ritualistic cannibalism, and I was a year old. These were my people, and this is my world. And the dialect was the first dreaming language that I had. And then I was sent away to boarding school when I was six and kind of everything crashed. Well, it had crashed a little bit before that for some of the great sadness reasons. You know, my 
relationship with my dad, which was very difficult, sexual abuse, both in the tribal culture and then in boarding school when I was sent away. And that just dismantled my world as, as well as finding out that I was white, which was a huge disappointment because I, I just didn't identify with the ghost people. You know, they had a word for it, mungats is what they it's a ghost person it's a person without substance you know it's mm. it's and, and i didn't identify that way at all so here i am now missionary kid we moved back to canada my father is an itinerant pastor i go to 13 schools before i graduate high school i go from high school to bible college studied theology went from there finished an undergraduate degree in in religious theology and then went to seminary for, I don't know, about a year and a half worth because I ran out of money. That was my background. But at the same time, I'm struggling deeply with questions about who God is and, you know, our view of the Bible, which was, of course, Father, Son, and Holy Bible kind of trinity. Because <laughs> we were cessationist in, the, in a large sense, sense, which means that, you know, we thought the Holy Spirit kind of stopped doing stuff after the Bible was put together as a canon or, or you know, somebody in the first century died. I think it was John the Beloved. And then... Uh, after that, you, you had the Bible. So who needs, <laughs> After that, nothing. Zip. End. Done. Right. You, who, needs the Holy, who needs the Holy Spirit? Right. And uh, you know what? Here's, here's a crazy thing. I have friends, my people, evangelical fundamentalists, and I say, look, if you were lost on a deserted island, would you rather have the Bible or the Holy Spirit? And it's a hard question for them. Mm -hmm. And it should be the easiest question in, in the universe. You know, it should be instantly, well, the Holy Spirit, of course. But for those of us who are addicted to certainty, and you know about that, we just, we would rather have something that we can control, an ideology or a doctrine, than a person that we have to trust. And uh, man, our addiction is really mm -hmm. deep. So it's yeah. a hard journey for a lot of us. And the process of deconstruction that has to take place is not just arduous, it is devastating in parts. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of us have experienced that process. Okay, now let's, let's get to, that's, that's very helpful. And I think some pieces fall into place for me in terms of your thinking in the shack by hearing a little bit of your biography. I did not know any of that. But okay, so we're, we're at the shack and God the Father is an African-American woman. You've that's answered a, this question a thousand times, but answer yeah. it one more time. Why sure. did you do that? Well, for one, I didn't write this for the world. I wrote it for my kids. And our youngest was uh, almost 13 at the time. And we have six children. So I wrote it as a Christmas present, not having any idea or thought to ever publish this. It was never on the radar. It was a Christmas present. And so... My goal was to do something that Kim, my wife, had asked me to do, and that was someday as a gift for our children, would you just write something that puts in one place how you think, because you think outside the box. And I don't want my kids growing up with Gandalf with a bad attitude, God, that I did. You know, which that, <laughs> that, <laughs> that white, distant omni-being behind, you know, the darkness behind Jesus, the God of the different nature who, who is the one that needs appeasing and sacrifice? Because Jesus doesn't. In fact, Jesus, as God, becomes the sacrifice for that darkness, the bigger God behind Jesus. And so I had a Jesus who came to save me from God the Father. And God the Father was always presented in a very concrete form. That is, masculine, bearded, elderly, distant, watching from the infinite distance of a disapproving heart, God. And then Jesus came to protect me from that God. So it was like, well, not only does that God really know that I'm a piece of crap, Jesus comes to cover me with his good righteousness so that God the Father doesn't really know I'm a piece of crap and I can get into heaven as long as <laughs> Jesus stays between me and God the Father. So when I am working on issues of the Trinity, and frankly, which is a part of a different discussion, but my entry into that conversation about the centrality of this relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be was because of gender issues, because most of the damage in my life comes from men. And I look around the world, and most of the damage in the world comes from men, and the scriptures are clear that it was through one man that sin entered the world not through the woman. In fact, through the woman comes the salvation apart from the will and the flesh of a male. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, so something is really messed up here. 
And the more I looked at the imagery that is used for God in Scripture, you begin to see this entire spectrum that is both masculine and feminine, is animal, is inanimate object, because, you know, God is a rock and a shield and a strong tower, a burning bush, a mother hen, a, a nursing woman in Isaiah, a woman who loses a coin, a shepherd, a king, a mother bear in Habakkuk, right? A, a lioness, an eagle. And then you start realizing that in the Hebrew scriptures, almost all the references to God as names are masculine, but almost, almost all the verbs are feminine. And then you go a little deeper and you find out that, guess what? God is not more male than female. All of maleness and femaleness, all of masculinity and femininity originate in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. And this is because everything is centered in relationship. So now we begin to see humanity as a spectrum rather than as a polarity. And what I wanted to do for my kids is just say, I want to tell you about the God who actually showed up and healed my heart, not the God I grew up with. Because the God I grew up with was narcissistic, double-minded, abusive, distant, was incredibly beautiful in one swing, but on the other swing, at the end of the day, would judge me anyway. And so my existence to that God was a performance existence. Now, now Paul, that God, okay, that you're reacting to, which I don't blame you. <laughs> I'd have written the shack too, you know, if I could write like that. Uh, but, you know, that God that you're saying is not the God you believe in, that God is presented at least in portions of Scripture. Yes, right. which, so, is, a, which is a problem, right? Right, that is a problem. So uh, get us out of it. Okay. In two minutes. Oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> in a tweet, in a tweet. Uh, some of our Eastern brothers, uh, Orthodox brothers, have, have got a great perspective on this. They, they like to say that not only is Scripture, especially the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, is not only is it a revelation, an, an unfolding revelation of the nature and character of God, it is a revelation of the depths of the lostness of humanity. So you've got both those things going on at the same time. You've got a God who is revealing the very nature and character of that which is good and beautiful and right and just inside submitting to human beings who are lost in their religious ideology. And, and I think one of the most helpful things that I can say that people could spend some time and just think about is that God has never been a religious being at all. God has never been religious. There's never been a time where, like, you know, the Spirit is saying, like, uh, so who's in charge of the service this weekend, you know, and where are we going to have it? And, uh, <laughs> I mean, God is just not a religious being, which means that, God is about relationship, and religion and relationship are oftentimes antagonistic. Not completely, but oftentimes antagonistic. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community— You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for an Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. 
Fast-growing trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. And what that means is that all religious ideology is something that we have brought to the table. And you can see God do this inside the Hebrew scriptures, an unfolding like, no, that's not who I am. I am not who you think I am. Let me tell you who I am. Let me give you a new name for who I am. So, you know, for using a quick illustration, there is the story of Abraham and Isaac, which is uh, the classic story for missionary kids, that if Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son, you as a missionary parent ought to be willing to sacrifice your children on the altar of God's purpose and mission. And frankly, a lot of us were slaughtered in the name of that story. Yuck. And so what's the real story then? Well, remember that on a scale of spiritual awareness, Abraham's got to be at A with a foot in B. He's, he doesn't know anything. He comes from Ur the Chaldees. Uh, all he knows is his religious heritage, which is moon goddess and God-worshipping. But He's not like the regular churchgoer in Ur of the Chaldees. He's, he can hear voices, and they're strong enough to get him to go out of town. So he's got a foot in A and a foot in B. And w- what I've come to understand in, in my personal relationship with God is that God has, is a very good communicator. And that when God comes into the darkness of our worlds and the limitations of our language, he doesn't speak in a way that we cannot hear. That is not what love would do. Love always looks for a way that we can hear, and God is a good communicator, but a respectful one. So God comes to Abram. What does Abraham believe? He believes what every religious system on the planet at his time believed, and that is that if you sacrifice to the God, that if you do it right and do it perfectly with the right words and the right magic, then you can twist that God's arm to do what you need him to do give you the crops, give you the success, give you the hunt, give you whatever. And every religion, whether you went to the South American tribal religions or Middle Eastern or African, they all believed in sacrificial systems. So what does God do? Climbs into our sacrificial system, uh, into Abraham's mindset and says, okay, sacrifice your son, which is the highest, you know, the religious uh, experience is to take a child and sacrifice a child. And that's, that's happening today in, in quote-unquote civilized ways and in quote-unquote pagan uncivilized ways. I mean, for 80 bucks U.S., you can go to Uganda and buy a child for 80 bucks U.S., and the witch doctor will sacrifice the child and put the body parts into the corners of buildings and new businesses in order to keep the evil spirits away. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. I didn't uh, know that. Right. Uh, it's horrible. Mm-hmm. But we're too civilized to do that. What we have is industrial military complexes that, <laughs> that we have hymns to and have services to. And we have the right magic words and the incantations. And we don't even begin to address the conversation about how... What does it mean now that I'm part of a kingdom that's not of the nationalistic patriotism of this world system, right? That can manipulate God and control God to desired result, right? Right, right. Through bloodshed, of course, you know, and sacrifice. We'll sacrifice our kids. We'll sacrifice your kids, you know, and we'll we'll write hymns to it. And, uh, and, And I'm all for supporting human beings, no matter what they're involved with in terms of military or all that kind of stuff. I get that. And these are, in fact, some of them are some of my best friends. And I've got a son who's a cop. So it's not like I'm outside the conversation. And, um, but again, what you have is God climb into Abraham's religious thinking. And he says, all right, so you do something that is legit, that you think is legit. 
and and you read it and you're going like abraham what how could you do this how can a how can a father turn around and kill their son and hebrew says well he does it because he thinks that either god's going to raise isaac from the dead or he's going to give him a new boy and uh and god lets him go all the way to the point where the knife's coming down and he stops him and he says abraham you know you you don't know anything about me i'm going to tell you a new name and my new name is jehovah jireh first time it's used in hebrew scriptures and 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 he says this is when abraham learned that god was the one who who would provide that is abraham I don't need a sacrifice. And later we're going to find out from the prophets that that's exactly right. God doesn't need a sacrifice, but you do. So if you need one, I will provide myself. Let me tell you one thing to make this perfectly clear, Abraham. I do not require child sacrifice. I will provide myself. And I know you're still locked in all of your religious thinking. So instead of a lamb, here's a ram. But one day I will provide myself as a lamb and I will take all this religious ideology and put an end to it by submitting to it. Well, okay. See, I, I agree with that. And Jared, you know, jump in here too. I, I agree with what you're saying. I think that's an important point to make that let's say to use a theological language, God accommodates to cultural expectations or structures, but then to use a relational language God submits to us. God submits to us and allows us to sort of describe God in ways that make sense to us, but then is also at the same time leading people beyond those cultural limitations to something that maybe transcends those categories, something bigger and better. I guess, I mean, this gets into sort of the the dicey stuff in the Bible, but, you know, you, you have whole books that seem to support the very, let's say, system that you're saying the Abraham story sort of argues against, like, you know, priesthood and and the need to sacrifice and the commands to sacrifice. And I mean, that's a big part of the biblical story. I'm not saying that you're wrong about Abraham. I'm I'm just wondering, you know, what do we do with this? Why is the Bible so diverse on this issue? Because even the the writers of Scripture were in conflict with each other. The editors were in conflict with each other. Even, you know, for example, I don't know if it's Samuel or Kings, or they have the story about David numbering the Israelites and how this catastrophe happens as a result. And in one version, in one of the books, it says that Satan went and killed everybody. And the other one, it says God went and killed everybody. You have this tension within the writers themselves. Because what, what do we have here? We have an unfolding story that is going to put us in a position where some of us can recognize Jesus as the incarnation of God when Jesus shows up. And Jesus is going to change everything. And after that, you've got to look through Jesus to look at any of these scriptures. And I know, see, I come from the tribe where I'm not talking about my Donnie tribe, I'm talking about my religious tribe, that, you know, we love the inerrant, infallible Word of God language. And, and I believe in the inerrant, infallible Word of God, and His name is Jesus. That's the difference, right? I have a real struggle with codifying what we have done in terms of inerrancy and infallibility. In fact, I don't know if you know T.F. Torrance. He's a Trinitarian theologian. He mm-hmm. and Jay, his brother were. But T.F. said, you know, inerrancy is a doctrine that Christians produced when they needed a mediator other than Jesus. Hmm. Right? Because he, he saw it as a low view of Scripture. And I see it as a low view of Scripture. So you have this conflict. You have a God who it is reported that, that orders the, the killing of children and parents and livestock and all this stuff. And, and then you have something like 2 Samuel 14, 14. And, and in here it says, we will all surely die and we're like water spilled on the ground, which can't be gathered up. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished ones will not be cast out from him. So you've got, you've got definitely a problem within the narrative itself. And then you have people in the New Testament, including Jesus, who will quote a piece from the Old Testament, but do it in such a way that it reinterprets it. Uh, there is this little rule in, 
interpreting scripture that says that repetition, repetition without redundancy equals interpretation. That means that if I repeat something, but not exactly the same, I'm actually interpreting. And one of the greatest examples in the New Testament is Paul when, and you got to read Paul the apostle, right? He is no slouch about his Jewish roots. He is a Jew of the Jew. He's probably the greatest mind after Gamaliel, who was his mentor. And he knows his scriptures. And yet he quotes probably one of the dominant themes of the Old Testament, but not exactly. And when you do that, you're interpreting. So, and it's in Galatians 3, 12, 13, 13, I think. And, uh, and it's when uh, there is this phrase that becomes this thing in Deuteronomy where cursed by God is every man who hangs upon the tree. And Paul quotes that, but he doesn't quote it exactly right. He says, cursed is every man who hangs upon the tree. He leaves the by God part off. He is saying that, yes, he's cursed, but not by God. He's agreeing with Isaiah. We esteem Jesus stricken by God, but we were wrong. And Paul's saying, yeah, they thought that every man who hangs upon the, on a tree is cursed by God, but he's not. He's cursed by us. We do that. God doesn't do that. A cross is not something that God originated. We did that. And again, you have this tension now between the writer of a New Testament referring to an Old Testament passage, but reframing it inside of, of Jesus and saying like, okay, we got that wrong. And, and that's hard for some of us who love the certainty of doctrine and scripture, you know. We're sorry to interrupt the podcast, but we want to take just one minute to mention two simple ways to support the work we do with the Bible for Normal People. One, just go to iTunes, rate us, and give us a review, but only if you like us. If you don't, first I would say reconsider your life choices, but two, then just ignore this message completely. Two, if you haven't already, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. There you'll be able to find ways to join the community, contribute to the discussion, and offer your support at various levels. And last but not least, we want to give our deepest thanks to some of the members of our producers group. These folks not only email us feedback, they hop on quarterly calls to give us feedback and have supported us financially. So thanks to Brox Beasley, Nathan Kitchen, Denise Howard, Bob Faby, Josh Levinson, Chrissy Florence, Caleb Needens, Michelle Snyder, Shea Box, and Greg Ballou. We couldn't do what we do without your help. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now back to the podcast. I'd be interested in a little more about that within the context of, so, you know, my tradition would, would say something, I mean, as an evangelical growing up, uh, pretty fundamentalist as well, that, you know, the reason that we hang on to that uh, terminology of the infallibility uh, or the inerrancy of the scripture is precisely because of Jesus. We want to use Jesus as this filter or lens but how can we know what Jesus said and did? How is that an accurate or reliable lens through which to interpret the rest of Scripture unless we can trust the way that Jesus is presented in the Bible, which kind of is a circular argument back to sure. inerrancy. Sure. So how do you talk about being able to use Jesus as this reliable lens through which we interpret the rest of Scriptures now without reverting back to those categories. Yeah. You know, if this was all easy, we'd all agree, you know? And if you want to go into a, a theological library, you'll find a thousand different books on one single verse of Romans, all with different points of view. So let's begin by saying, okay, the idea of inerrancy, which is fairly modern, is based on manuscripts that don't exist. And it seems like God went out of the way to make sure they didn't exist, or we'd surely end up worshiping them. We've done it ideologically anyway. But here we've got inerrancy as this way that we look through rather than trusting relationship. And let's be honest, that people say, 
Paul, how could you put words in God's mouth? You know, that's one of my accusations from my people. Uh, besides, how dare you make Jesus a Middle Easterner? You know, that's another one I get, which is kind of funny. They say, how can you put words in God's mouth? I said, what, you've never been to church? You know, you, you've never heard anybody talk about scripture? Because we're all putting words in God's mouth. We're all looking at the same text. And even those who translate it into English have filtered it through their perspective. So what does that mean? Well, that means that, yes, we have a high view of Scripture. That is, it's, it's uniquely put together. It's even the process of the canon, whether you allow for the Catholic extra books or you don't or whatever, is pretty amazing. And this, the consistency of the story and all this, especially the New Testament writers, yes, but what does it mean? You have an anointing that dwells in you and, and will lead you into abiding in Him. That's the Holy Spirit. And, you know, this is an act of relationship that you can actually trust. And yeah, the text is going to be a problem at times, both the New Testament stuff and the Old Testament stuff. But if, if it doesn't affect your ability to love, then put it to the side until at some point that you can work it out. You're not going to work it all out. There's not going to be all answers to all these questions. And, uh, and we've got to learn to live with that uncertainty and that ambiguity. And what we want in inerrancy is we want a doctrine that we can ag agree with, but that's still the, it's not a helpful one because it doesn't tell you what the text means. All of us interpret, and, and every scholar interprets, and we all bring our baggage to the table. It really is ultimately not about the text because even the text itself, you don't know what the tone of voice was. If I say to you, he didn't say he stole the money, you can parse that, you can break it down, you can tell me what the Greek words are, you can, you can do all of that. What does it mean? Well, he didn't say he stole the money, 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 he didn't say he stole the money. You know, seven words, seven interpretations. So, we're dealing with ambiguity, and we're dealing with a God who is someone we can trust. And that should open up a big space to say, you know what, let's talk about this, because the Holy Spirit is trustworthy in this conversation about Scripture, in this conversation about the character and nature of God. And if this conversation doesn't increase my capacity to love and be an expresser of the goodness and the kindness and the grace of God, then we're dealing in some mind game here, which we in the West are especially good at. Yeah, we certainly are. All right, I guess let me, let me ask the question this way. It seems like it's always been part of the human drama, including within the Bible, to, I guess, imagine God in certain ways. I know that sounds a little bit screwy for some people. Well, the Bible reveals things about God. But in a way, too, people have looked at God in ways that make sense in their culture. And, you know, if I hear you correctly, Paul, we're moving into the New Testament, and there is some reimagining going on where, you know, Paul agrees with Isaiah, right, about, yep. you know, whether to what extent God is involved in, in the wrath, of, you know, and the sacrifice of Jesus and, and what's behind all that. Let me say, I, I think you're going to agree with this, but I, I want to hear you riff a little bit on, isn't it part of the human predicament then to, to have to think about God differently at different times and places and under different sets of experiences? We should anticipate never being able to fully apprehend or comprehend the character and nature of God. That's disappointing because I've got all sorts of systematic theology books that say the opposite. <laughs> this is why the early church would have never written a systematic theology, <laughs> right? They started with the relationship. And I don't know about you, but you enter a relationship and you enter a mystery and you lose control. Yeah, ask any, well, you're married, you know, and it's, it's not only a static universe. This relationship, that person continues to expand. You begin to see them grow right before your very eyes. So if you want to get to a place where you fully know your spouse, for example, or that person, or that child or that grandchild, it's not going to happen. They're going to continue to grow and surprise you. And this is a God who is incomprehensible in that sense, but wants to be known and known truly and authentically. And so you're back to do I know my wife? Absolutely, but not absolutely. 
right? Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I know her better than I've ever known her because of the ongoing disclosures, but she continues to grow and change. And there are depths to her that I know that not only have I not plummeted, but she has not either. And those still await us. So you compile that onto this relationship with a God who is so beautiful, too beautiful for words, and yet wants to be fully known. And it's in that knowing that that the work takes that is the no, that is the work right that is eternal life to know and, and sometimes i think there's a trap there that in order to save things like inerrancy or knowing knowing with certainty who god is and how god works kind of the trap is it's not it's not really worth the effort like why not give up on the bible or why not give up on god if we can't attain this level. So I really appreciate your relationship language because we would never say that about a spouse or about someone else. Well, if I can't know them with absolute certainty, why bother knowing them at all? And yeah, right. I think that kind of points to that. And it also reminds me of, you know, the philosopher uh, Jacques Derrida, when he talks about things like justice, where he says like every act of justice always has a little twinge of injustice to it. Like we can never get to that kind of perfect capital J just moment. We, we wouldn't be able to as humans but we should still strive for it and because uh, there's always something partly true about it and we want to hold on to that. So I appreciate the, bringing the relationship angle to it because I think that undermines that idea of like, well, what good is it if we can't get to the perfection or the perfect or the certainty? And when in a relationship, yeah. we would just never use that language. No, and, G and Jesus tried to interrupt that kind of thinking in the Pharisees and the, and the Jewish leadership when he says, look, you're looking at scriptures as if they contain eternal life. They don't, right? They speak about me. I am the life, right? I'm right here, right in front of you. This is about relationship. And you want to go back to scripture? You want to go back to scripture when I'm right here? And that's hard for some of us who... You know, the, the God we grew up with was not a relational being. He was a retributive, punitive being. You know, you can't trust someone that you don't believe is good all the time. And so that now begins to say, okay, let's have a conversation about who is this God? And that takes me back to Jesus, who is the expression of this God who disrupts the empire, disrupts religion, but he does it through submission, through kindness, through goodness, through grace, through touch, through hugs, through smile, through laughter, through confrontation, through fury against all that which hurts the ones he loves. And now we're talking relational language. If you can't describe God in terms of your relationship with your children or grandchildren, then your view of God is incorrect. You know, if you say, well, I can't wait for God to use me, you know, I just want to be a tool. You would never say that about your children or grandchildren. You wouldn't say to your grandchild, look, I can't wait for you to grow up so you can be a tool I can use. And yet we're so glib about the way that we'll use that language. And we think that we've gotten that language from scripture. It's non-relational. It's utilitarian. And it just doesn't hold up to the scrutiny of love and relationship and the beauty of the great dance. It just doesn't do justice mm. to it at all. Mm. I guess you can get too stuck in expecting the Bible to solve those complexities for us of what it means to think about what is God for us right here and right now. Yeah. It's easier to rely on a script that is, and you mentioned before, Paul, a script that is frustratingly unaccommodating to, to how some people use it right? That this, sure. this settles the issue. All parts agree, and it settles the issue of what God is like. And yet we see, I mean, literally throughout history, even to today, people thinking about God's and, God in ways that make sense to them. And, you know, again, getting back to your book, you know, you got some pushback for how you imagined God, but don't we all do that? I mean, when we think of God as uh, right. into earth care and recycling and even, you know, equality for the sexes or for different races, you can find plenty of parts of the Bible where that doesn't seem to be true. But yet, especially earth care and, you know, recycling, we don't, we don't really have that. I believe in all those things are true, but I don't, I don't think I believe in them because I find them in the Bible somewhere. But it's more, you know, like you said, the spirit 
active in the life of the church and of people. And, you know, God is not dead and the Bible is not the third person of the Trinity and that sort of stuff. Right. And, and yet here we have this unbelievably beautiful compilation of human experiences and interactions with God that's poetic and grandiose and apocalyptic and all these different genres compiled together in a beautiful landscape. I love the scriptures, but I think what we've done to it is an injustice to what it was intended to be, which is an unfolding story of God's continuing pursuit of us. And we're locked inside of the narrowness of our paradigms because, frankly, we want certainty. We don't want trust. And trust is the big journey. Uh, We're so stuck in our heads, and especially as uh, Western Enlightenment offshoots or offspring, that we turn belief into, you know, the, the home that we've built inside of our own minds that have become prisons to us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's all this intellectual rationality rather than the mystery and the ambiguity of actual trust and right. relationship. And yeah, so it's, it's not that simple, but, but our paradigms are being challenged right. and they're being challenged by imagery, you know, that is beyond, that is bigger than ours. And frankly, imagery was never intended to define God. It was intended to be just a window through which we could Mm -hmm. apprehend or comprehend some facet of the character and nature. And once we concretize it, God is male and white and, and distant. Now we're much closer to idolatry than we were when we were inside the fluid motion of all kinds of different imagery. Well, okay. Well, well, we're we're moving. Uh, we're actually getting really close to the end of our time. I wanted to ask you one last question. If maybe you can give me an elevator pitch response to this, because it involves again the shack and people's strong reaction. I I actually I'm not kidding. I when the book came out, I read it. I really loved it because it made me it made me think differently about God and what God is like. And you know, we need that every now and then. I sort of judge people by how they respond to the book. <laughs> Are you ready for certain kind of conversations or not? But uh, maybe just a, a brief word on what you think is something of the psychology of the responses you got to how you reimagine God in that book. What, what do you think accounts for it? People bring what they have, and they, okay, they only bring what they have. And, and I know my people. I know our addiction to certainty. And when people have had a visceral reaction to it, at least they're engaged. I mean, an angry person is an engaged person. Mm-hmm. An ambivalent person is not. And I know in that moment that that person is bringing to me what they have. They're telling me in the only language they know how about what matters to them and what they care about. If I think that they're in this conversation to tell me about me, we're going to have a war, right? But I'm old enough to know better than that. That. Mm-hmm. They don't know me. I know me. So I'm not at risk here. And part of the psychology of this is that we've had such a mental, systematic theology, quote unquote, relationship with God, that we're terrified of anything that can shake it. And a lot of the response is a fear response. It's not intellectual. It's actually affective. Mm -hmm. People are afraid. They're afraid that somehow you're going to take Jesus away from me. And Jesus is the one who showed up and healed me, changed my life, turned me in a different direction. And, you know, because we've put theology and doctrine on such a high pedestal, rather than Jesus, that 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 theology then becomes our way to Jesus. And uh, that's, I think, what uh, Torrance was saying, that we've used inerrancy as a doctrine when Jesus wasn't a good enough mediator. And so, you know, I think the, the psychology is largely we're stuck in our paradigms, and, and it scares us. To and the comfort they give us and the fear of losing them. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's the human predicament. I think we all have that on some level, but being self-aware is important. So, well, listen, Paul, thank you. Uh, we, we need to bring this to a close, but thank you so much for being with us. This was a thrill and we just had a great time speaking with you. Uh, I imagine people sort of know who you are because you wrote this book and you did yeah, this movie. Kinda. 
Um, yep. But you you are on Twitter. I am, and right. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, so they can, people connect, can find you there if they want to connect and follow you they and can. stuff like that. So okay, yeah. and let let me tell you one last little story about the power mm-hmm. of paradigms, and this is kind of where we're stuck. We don't understand how powerful a paradigm is that controls the way that we then see the universe, which includes our understanding of God, and and who we are as human beings. I had a gal who's a friend, and she came up after I spoke about paradigms, actually. And she said to me, she had her head down. And you know how some people carry in their bodies the brokenness of their histories. And they are, their eyes are driven to the ground because that's where shame always puts your eyes. And she said, you know, Paul, when I was growing up, I prayed to God as a child every night that God would change the color of my eyes to blue for years. And the reason was, is my dad was a, an alcoholic and not just any alcoholic. He was a mean drunk. And when he got drunk, which was almost every night, he would start to tell me, even as a four-year-old and a five-year-old and a six-year-old, that I was so ugly. And one of the ways that that ugliness manifested was that my eyes were the color of cat shit. He says, you know what? Your eyes are just the color of cat shit. So I prayed every night, dear God, would you please change the color of my eyes to blue? And she said, I did that for years because I thought if God would just change the color of my eyes to blue, my dad would love me. He wouldn't think I was ugly. She looks up at me and she says, so Paul, what are the color of my eyes? And I'm looking into two of the most beautiful blue eyes you've ever seen. And I'm thinking, what? God changed the color of her eyes? And she goes, they were always this color, but I didn't know it until I was in my 30s. (laughs) Right? That's Mm -hmm. the power of a paradigm. Absolutely. That's, That's how we get locked into our ways of thinking. And anything that begins to not agree with our assumptions begins to be scary to us. Yeah. And uh, the invitation is, no, look, look, and look up and, and see face to face. You're okay. This will work out. You don't have to have all the answers. It's all right. Yeah. What if God likes us? Ah! So, you know, and, <laughs> that'd be a big surprise, right? <laughs> Isn't against us. Well, listen, Paul, again, uh, thanks so much for being with us. And uh, we appreciate it. And blessings to you. Blessings to you. I'm honored to be on this. Thanks, Pete, for all you've done. And Jared, for the the help of uh, putting this together. Much appreciated. You bet. As always, thank you for listening to the Bible for Normal People podcast. Thank you for supporting us by downloading. Jared and I have a lot of fun doing this. And, you know, one of the things we talked about was creating spaces. And that was our vision um, for Patreon. Our community online at patreon.com, front slash the Bible for Normal People, as well as the website, the Bible for Normal People.com or PeteEnds.com, where we have these conversations a lot and hopefully we are creating safe places. So if you want to check more uh, into those, you can go to the Bible for Normal People.com or patreon.com, front slash the Bible for Normal People. Thanks and we'll see you next time. See ya.